It's so good to have you worshiping with us, whether you're here in person. It's good to see so many in person, or if you're worshiping virtually, there is no mistake that you're here today. God has something special in store for all of us today. Uh, my name is Evan, and I serve in worship arts here on our staff team, and I've got a couple things I wanna talk to you about this morning. First is our Spectra Art Ministry, and Spectra is a community of Christian artists here in Fayetteville who have a common goal of expressing worship through the mediums of art. And we have our current gallery exhibit is in the foyer right now, and the theme is One Heart and One Mind, which is taken from John 17, Jesus' prayer for all believers that they would be of one heart and one mind in Christ. And so several of our artists here in Fayetteville have created pieces, and each one has a very unique story to tell of their worship experience. And we've created a gallery aisle so that you can safely and socially distance and view that art and read those stories and be impacted by what the Lord has shown these artists through this passage. Um, and so you can also view it virtually if you're worshiping with us at home. You can click into the link and view the gallery virtually. And if you are an artist, and there's many mediums of art, but if you are an artist here in Fayetteville, I would love to meet you, I would love to connect with you, get you involved in Spectra or answer questions that you may have, just get you plugged in and using your gift as an act of worship. The second thing I wanna to talk to you about is women's Bible study starts Tuesday. Um, they're meeting Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening, and they're going through the study of Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm to many of us, but it's just powerful in any season of life. And so ladies, if you're not connected in women's Bible study, I would encourage you to become a part of that and be impacted by this study this semester. And community across Northwest Arkansas is happening. Um, groups are meeting in maybe 10 or fewer in person with masks and socially distanced, or they're, view they're, they're meeting virtually. And if you're not involved in community, I really wanna strongly urge you to do that. Click on the link, get connected, and 
be a part of a small group here at Fellowship. I know for me and my husband, we have just recently gone through a season of loss where we've um, lost a loved one, and the body of believers has so come around us in such powerful and tangible ways that I think if we had not been involved in community over the years, um, that we just wouldn't have felt the hands and feet of Jesus as poignantly as we have during this season. And so I just wanna invite you, we all need community as this pandemic kind of drags on. And even if there was no pandemic, we are wired for community. It's part of our DNA. Our God is a triune God. He is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen? And so we need to be connected to each other and have that refreshment that the body of believers gives to each other. And so I urge you to be a part of that. And as we continue in our time of worship this morning, as we hear the word spoken and taught and as we respond in song, would you pray with me? Lord God and Father, thank you that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are holy and worthy of our praise. Thank you that you are a God of creativity and that you are our good shepherd who leads us and that you are the God of community. Lord, as we respond in worship, as we hear the teaching of your word, will you change us? Will you make us different than how we came in this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Isaiah Mina, and I get the privilege to serve as the student worship pastor here at Fellowship Fayetteville. So glad and excited to be with you guys this morning. And as we continue our time of worship, I felt encouraged as I look at the team and I look at you guys and I'm reminded that together we have community and that we can also give our worship fully to the Father this morning. So can we sing like we mean it, with some joy, with some life? Because we've been given hope and peace and even in the midst of some uncertain times as we're experiencing a, a pandemic and so much uncertainty in, in a lot of areas in our life, we can be reminded that through Christ, through our good Father, that we have, we have hope and we have life and we have joy. So can we sing of his great goodness this morning? Let's stand and sing.
It's your prayer this morning. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Joshua sent two spies out from the Israeli encampment. Go, check out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, he said, especially around the city of Jericho. <clears throat> so the two spies set out. In Jericho, they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. The king heard that there were Israeli spies in the city, and he sent his men to Rahab's looking for them. When they arrived, Rahab said, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. All the while, the spies were actually hiding on Rahab's roof. So the king's men took off looking for the spies, and as soon as they left, the gate to the city was shut behind them. It was then that Rahab went up on the roof to talk with the spies. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We were all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear 
No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For your God, Yahweh, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me as I have helped you. When Jericho is conquered, let me and my family live. We will guarantee your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Before the men left, they told her, when we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window. No one will lay a hand on the people inside this house. So she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. What a story. What a story. The book of Joshua is filled with those kind of stories, these vivid images that fill our minds. They just jump off the page. All of us can picture in our head the scene where the priests stand on dry ground where just moments before the Jordan River had raged, holding up the Ark of the Covenant. All of us can picture in our mind Joshua encountering the commander of the Lord's army. We have this image. We can see it. We can hear it when the trumpet blows and the walls of Jericho begin to crumble. The book's filled with these vivid pictures, but none of them are more vivid or more significant, I will argue, than this one. Just a simple strand of scarlet cord. And what we're gonna see this morning is that this scarlet cord is part of a larger scarlet cord that runs through the whole Bible, stitching the whole thing together. Can you tell I'm excited about this? Let's get to it. Turn to Joshua chapter two. Joshua is gonna be near the front of your Bible. It's the sixth book of the Bible, and we're gonna be in chapter two as we look at the story that we just heard, the story of Rahab. Well, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and if you're new or Maybe you're not new, but you just haven't been with us in a while, or maybe you're joining us online this morning. Welcome. You're jumping in at a great time. We're just two weeks in to our study of the historical book of Joshua, and we're going to stay in this study all the way up through Palm Sunday and Easter. Well, if you weren't here last week, I want to suggest that you go back and listen to Garland's teaching. Garland did a great job not only teaching us Joshua 1, but just setting the stage for the whole book and, and helping us understand how it fits in to the story of the Bible. By the way, um, as I'm saying that, go back and listen to that. I want to just point out, there's a lot of great resources at fellowshipfayable.org slash services. If you go there, not only will you find the video of the service, the podcast that you can listen to, you'll find the teaching slides. There's other documents like a discussion guide that you can use in your community group or in your family. There's a family worship guide so you can have church at home with your kids. And there's a link to Fellowship News, which is a great place to find out all the things that are going on here, ways you can get connected. And I wanna echo what Evan said just a few minutes ago. The best way to get connected is in a small group. So fellowshipfayable.org slash smallgroups. There's just a simple form there you can fill out. We would love to help you get connected into a small group. Okay, website commercial over. Let's go back to Joshua. Last week, 
Garland said that Joshua is continuing the story of Israel as they've left Egypt, wandered in the wilderness, and now they're on the doorstep of the promised land. That's what we call the land God promised them, the promised land, because we're so creative. Haven't you noticed, like, what do we call our student ministries? Student ministries. Yeah, we're super creative around here. The land God promised them, we call it the promised land. And Garland talked to us last week about their unshakable courage that came not from looking within, but from looking to God. And I want you to hold on to that idea today because what we're gonna see is Rahab, who has unshakable courage as she takes a courageous step of faith. So last week, we wrapped up with Israel camp just outside the promised land, preparing to cross the Jordan River. And Joshua chapter two begins with Joshua making his first sort of tactical move. He sends two spies and he says, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, if you remember Joshua's story, he was part of a similar mission. We find it back in Numbers Chapter 13, Moses sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the land. And they spent 40 days doing reconnaissance. And then when they came back, 10 of the 12 spies said, we can't do it. We can't take the land. The people are too big and too scary. Only two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, we can do it. God's with us. We can and we must take the land. And the people of Israel are so angry at Caleb and Joshua that they pick up rocks to stone them. God has to intervene. And God says, Israel, because you were not faithful and you listened to those 10 spies, you're gonna have to wander in the desert one year for each day that the spies are in the land. For 40 years, Israel has to wander in the desert. And God also decrees, because of your unbelief, every person over the age of 20, except Caleb and Joshua, will die in a desert. And so now here we are, Joshua chapter two. An entire generation has passed away, a new generation has become adults, and they're ready to move into the promised land. And it seems like Joshua learned something from that first experience, doesn't it? He doesn't send 12 spies, he sends two the same number that were faithful the first time. And he says, especially check out Jericho. He knows Jericho is gonna be our first major obstacle after we cross the Jordan. Jericho is gonna be the key to entering the promised land. And so he sends these two men. We find out in chapter six, they're young men, and they come to Jericho. Let's talk about Jericho. It's basically... A military installation. Jericho is a fortified city. It's about nine acres. And archaeologists tell us it had three walls, one built inside the other, with the innermost wall being the highest at about 46 feet. And these spies probably just walked right in. There would have been no reason for the gate to be closed during the day, during peacetime. And they come to the home of Rahab a prostitute. Now, there's been a lot written and said about Rahab's line of work over the years. Some translations even go so far as to call her an innkeeper. 
But as I looked at the word in the Hebrew, it's pretty clear that it means what our translation says. And I love how John Calvin, the great reformer, 16th century reformer, he wrote a commentary on Joshua. And here's what he said, and I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase him. But he said, look, we don't need to create our own version of what the Bible says to protect anybody's reputation. Here's how I think we would say it today. This is her before part of her story. When we share our story here, we always encourage people, tell what your life was like before you met Christ, how you met Christ, and what your life has been like since you met Christ. So we don't wanna take anything away from Rahab's before story because it makes her life change that much more amazing and gives that much more glory to God. But then what about the spies? Hey guys, uh, what are y'all doing at Rahab's place? Well, if Jericho is basically a military garrison, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to walk in and sit down in the mess hall? Are they supposed to go in the barracks and be like, hey guys, who's on guard duty tonight? And also, how many guards do we have? And also, do we have bows and arrows? Like, that's not a good way to be a spy. But Rahab's place was probably designed for people to come and go unseen. Rahab's place was probably out of the way and, and it was probably built in a way to obscure the occupants. And Rahab probably knew a lot about what was going on around there. And so actually it was a great place to go and gather information. So they slip into Rahab's, they think without being seen, but someone did see them. And they tell the king, hey, there's some Israeli spies in the city spying out the land. So this, the king sends a couple of soldiers up. Now in my mind, I kind of picture they're stormtroopers and they go in and Rahab's like, these are not the men you're looking for. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Look how Rahab actually handled it. Pick up the story in verse four. The woman, Rahab, took the two men and she hit them and she said, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So what do the king's men do? They take off after them, but all the while, the spies are hiding under some flax on Rahab's roof. Isn't this straight out of a movie? I mean, this story is over 3,000 years old. It would make an exciting movie today. And so Rahab goes up to the spies, and this is the heart of the story. This is the most important part of the passage because what Rahab says lets us see past her profession. It lets us see what's going on in her heart. Look at verse eight. Before the men lay down, Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now, pause for a second. This is a very familiar story. We know what's gonna happen. And so it's easy for us to just gloss over some things. But take a second and look at her first statement. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, I know I say this every time I teach, but when you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. She uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. 
king of Israel, the covenant-keeping God, creator of heavens and earth. She says, I know the Lord Yahweh has given you this land. Rahab, a Gentile, pagan prostitute who lives in the wall of the city that's Israel's enemy, has more faith than the people of Israel did when the spies came back and said, no, they're too scary. She says she knows that Yahweh has given them the land. Now, how could she know this? How could she even know who Yahweh is? She tells us. She's convinced because of what she's heard. Look at verse 10. For we've heard how the Lord, Yahweh, dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That's how Rahab has come to this conclusion. She's heard what the Lord has done. And she's believed. Look at her final statement in verse 11. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's a theological statement of what Rahab believes. She believes the God of Israel is the God of heaven and earth. That's a strong statement. Now, Bible scholars call people like Rahab God-fearers. That's the term for people who weren't Jewish, they weren't part of Israel, and yet they believed in the God of the Bible. And in Rahab's case, it's literal. She's a God-fearer. She believes in the God of Israel, and she's afraid of him. But she also believes he can save her because she says to the spies, hey, I protected you. Now's your chance to return the favor. When you destroy the city, spare me and my parents my brother and sister and their families. She believes God's about to act in judgment, but she also believes she can be spared. And the spies agree. In verse 14, they say, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And I love their confidence when the Lord gives us this land. Again, contrast that with the faithlessness of those spies back in Moses' day who came back and said, we can't possibly take the land. These guys don't say that. They don't say to Rahab, are you kidding? We're not coming back here. We're barely getting out of here with our life. There's no way this can be done. No, they say, when God gives us this land, we'll take care of you. Now, before we go on, is anything bothering you? Is there anything in this story that's kind of hitting you funny, kind of sticking in your craw? Like maybe the fact that the hero of the story is the hero of the story because she tells a big fat lie? Does that bother anybody? And I mean, this is not kind of leaving out some facts. This is not telling a half truth. This is a liar, liar, pants on fire whopper. I don't know where they went. If you go, you can probably catch them. I mean, it's brilliant from an espionage point of view, but kind of dubious from a morality point of view. So the question is, how am I gonna stand up here and commend Rahab as a person of faith when she's a liar? 
I mean, is the Bible teaching that it's okay to lie to the bad guys if it helps the good guys? And if so, how do I know when I'm in a circumstance where it's okay for me to lie? Now, if you want to tie your brain in a knot, read what some Christian ethicists have written about this. They will argue themselves in a pretzel trying to get around the fact that Rahab tells a lie. But I don't think we have to do that. I actually love how honest the Bible is here. She lied. You know why? Because people lie. There's not a single person in here who's never told a lie, myself included. People do the wrong thing for the right reason and the right thing for the wrong reason all the time because we are fallen, broken creatures living in a messed up world. And somehow, in God's sovereignty, he takes that mess that we're all a part of and uses it to advance his purposes. God works things out according to his plan. So, does this text say it's okay to lie? No, there's nowhere in the Bible that lying is commended. You know what is commended? Her faith. It's her faith that the Bible holds up. So could God have worked out his plan without her lying? Yes, of course he could. But that's not what happened. So the Bible's not endorsing lying. God's very nature is rooted in truth. It's not her lie that we admire. It's her faith. It's her strong belief in God that's motivating her actions. And so the story ends with the spies being lowered out of her window, which is in the edge of the wall, so they're outside the city now. And look at their final instructions to Rahab in verse 18. They say, behold, it means look, look, Rahab, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. They tell her to display the scarlet cord in her window. They tell her, you'll be spared in the day of battle. And then the spies return back to Joshua and look at the report they give him. They say, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. It's totally the opposite of the report of the spies back in Numbers 13. These guys experiencing Jericho's convinced them, God's not gonna just give us this city. He's gonna give us all of the land. This is a great story, no doubt about it. This thing is action-packed, and we're only in the second chapter of the book. But at this point, I want us to pause and ask the question that we should always ask every time we open our Bibles. What does God want us to learn from this? Why is this episode included in our Bibles? And as I thought about that question, and as I just meditated on the faith of Rahab, I realized that Rahab's story is in here to show us that nobody is beyond the reach of God's great love. I mean, who could seem further from God than Rahab? First of all, she lives in a pagan fortress. She is at ground zero of idol worship. She was probably born into a family that worshiped false gods. Did you know that if you go today to the city where Jericho once stood, there's a sign that says, welcome to the city of the moon. Google it. It's in English. 
Why? Because Jericho was the center of the worship of the Canaanite moon god. That's where, that's where Rahab lived. She wouldn't have grown up knowing anything about Israel or the law or Yahweh. And her gender likely meant she wouldn't have been educated. I hate to say it, but living where she lived, when she lived, she wouldn't have been valued. And then her occupation meant that she had to live on the edges of society. So here's a woman who's totally cut off from the promises of God, living in a city that's an enemy of God, practicing a profession that's an affront to God, living in the wall of the city, and yet she says, Yahweh is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. She saw evidence of God at work, and she believed the last person in the world we would have thought would turn to Yahweh believed, and she acted on that belief. And because of that, she's never been forgotten. Rahab's not this minor character who just kind of disappears into the biblical narrative. No, she shows up again. As a matter of fact, she shows up in the New Testament. If we were to turn to the book of Hebrews, by the way, we're gonna study Hebrews in here this summer. I can't wait, it's gonna be awesome. If we turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the Hall of Faith. The writer to the Hebrews lists all these champions of the faith. And you know who's listed alongside Noah and Abraham and Moses and David is Rahab. By faith, he says, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She's commended for her faith. The most unlikely person you could imagine ends up in the hall of faith. And then James, in his letter, he has a similar commendation. Y'all probably remember, James is writing about how our faith should result in works. And he says something similar about Rahab. In James 2.25, he says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified or was her faith not vindicated by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Her faith was revealed by her actions. And for Rahab, these were actions that carried a great risk, but they demonstrated her courageous faith. And then there's one other place in the New Testament where we see Rahab, and what a place it is. The Old Testament ends, and then that one blank page in your Bible, that's 400 years of silence from God. And then you turn the page, and the New Testament begins with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The New Testament begins by establishing the lineage of Jesus from Abraham through David down to Joseph and Mary. And you know who we find in verse five? Yep, Rahab. There's only five women mentioned in the whole genealogy of Jesus. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, thought it was important to note her, a Gentile, prostitute, the resident of a city that was opposed to God, a woman as far from God as anyone on earth could be, believed and was saved. 
and was used by God to keep the bloodline going that would result in the birth of King David and ultimately our Savior, the Messiah, King Jesus. And that idea brings me back to this image that we started with, the scarlet cord. Many over the years have pointed to Joshua 2 as part of this theme of a scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible. You know, sometimes we think of the Bible as a series of loosely connected stories that are designed to teach moral lessons. But the Bible is so much more than that. It's actually a tightly connected um, description, a tightly connected story of God's interaction with humanity that starts at the very beginning and goes all the way to today. And throughout the Bible, we find this theme of redemption through the shedding of blood. We start at the Passover event in Exodus. A lamb was slain. And in Exodus 12, 23, it says, you put the blood on the doorpost. And when God sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over. Those inside the home will be spared God's act of judgment. Then we see echoes of that in Joshua 2, when those inside the home are protected by this scarlet cord that's a picture of the blood of the Passover lamb. And then for years and years, the Jewish people would have sacrificed animals and seen the blood spilled, a reminder of the seriousness of sin and the need for atonement. And it was all pointing to John 1.29 when John the Baptist would point at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those lambs, all those sacrifices were pointing to the perfect, pure, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus. And then Paul would pick up that idea in Ephesians chapter two when he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just as Rahab, a Gentile woman who was far from God, was brought near by her faith pictured by this scarlet cord. We, Gentiles, are brought near through the blood of Jesus, that scarlet thread of redemption that ties it all together. And it's because of that scarlet thread that nobody is beyond the reach of God's great love. And so who would we say today, who would we say might be at risk of being beyond the reach of God's great love. Well, the first person that would come to our mind for most of us is that person who's born in a place where the name of Jesus is not named. That person who, like Rahab, is born into a situation where everything's oriented against God. Well, that's why we send global workers. That's why we pray for them and we support them with our giving because we believe that nobody is beyond the reach of God's great love. And you know, some of those people that we're describing, God brings right here to our doorstep. People born into that situation where the name of Jesus is never named come right here to Fayetteville, Arkansas to study at our great university. And we have the opportunity 
to get to know them, to invite them into our homes, to invite them to our community group and to our church. We can support great organizations like the International Student Christian Association because we believe that nobody is beyond the reach of God's great love. But you know what? It might not be someone born somewhere else. It might be the person who offices right next to you, the person who sits in the same pickup line as you at your kid's school, somebody who grew up right here and now they live in your apartment building or your neighborhood. Maybe they grew up around church, but they were burned by a bad church experience. And now they think that because of things in their past, they're beyond saving and you can be the one to tell them, no, nobody is beyond the reach of God's great love. Or maybe it's you. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've been around the church long enough that now your heart is inoculated against the gospel. You've heard it your whole life. You know all the right answers, and yet you know deep down inside that your heart is cold toward the things of God. And now you think, man, the things I've done or even the things I'm doing right now, God's love can't reach me. And I want you to know, if God can reach a Gentile, pagan, prostitute who lives in the wall of an enemy city, he can reach you. All you have to do is admit that that scarlet thread, the shed blood of Jesus is enough to forgive your sins. You can take hold of that crimson cord and become part of the scarlet thread of redemption simply by calling out and admitting that you need Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving Rahab and her family. And then thank you for using that family to bring us the Messiah. Lord, thank you that none of us are beyond your great love. And thank you that just as Rahab saw you at work and was saved, we can be saved simply by believing your promises and recognizing that you are God. You're a holy God. You're the God of heavens above and the earth below. And we worship you. So good. 
Well, he is faithful to the end. He was faithful to Rahab, we're gonna see, in Joshua 6. The spies remembered their promise. She and her family were saved, and it says in Joshua 6 that they lived in Israel for generations, and God is faithful to us. If we call upon his name, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Hey, if you'd like to continue to worship, we'd invite you, these doors on your right, come back to the prayer room, you can pray, you can take communion there. We'd love for you to take us up on that. And remember this week, nobody is beyond the reach of God's great love. He loves you and we love you, fellowship. We'll see you next week.